Thank you for agreeing to come. Thank you for turning up on time and being here. It's a privilege to be here. It's great fun. And those of you who were here about 20 minutes ago, just before the sun actually went down, we got a glimpse of the hallowed turf. And these pictures around the room are great, but I never thought that I would appear at the Oval <laughs> in front of the stumps with Alex Stewart behind me. <laughs> and uh, this is a moment I'm in, enjoying at the moment. Um, so well done, Paula and Daphne at the Family Justice Council. I'll thank them at the end. Uh, but just choosing the venue, setting it up, getting you all here uh, takes an enormous amount of work. Uh, and so I'm very, very, very glad that they are on board and they've done so well to get you all here. The uh, motion, I hope, is topical and interesting. I certainly think it is. Do separating parents need the family court? And we're very privileged to have four distinguished speakers uh, with us uh, this evening. I'll introduce each of them in a bit more detail uh, when it's their turn to uh, stand up. But um, Mavis McLean, who's a, a senior research fellow in law at Oxford, will be well known to very many of you uh, as being someone who has been involved in this work now for um, uh, a long time. And, <laughs> and who continues to make a vibrant and very active contribution to the thought uh, behind all that we do. Uh, Jane Roby, Chief Executive of the National Family Mediation, will be speaking after Mavis. Mavis is for the motion. Jane's uh, the first speaker against it. Then Olive Craig, who's the Senior Legal Officer at the Rights for Women Group, will be effectively the seconder uh, for the motion. And finally, uh, Heather McGregor, uh, a retired uh, district judge from the Principal, family, uh, principal Register of the Family Division, who still sits as a, a deputy, um, previously uh, a family barrister will wind up for uh, the speech uh, against. Um, each of the speakers uh, is determined to stick to their 15 minutes. There isn't a clock that any of us can see in the room, so I will have a fit of coughing uh, at about 14 and a half minutes in, because part of the value of these evenings is the uh, question and answer and the debate between all of you, and we're keen to get to that soon after six o'clock so that we can have um, most of the, the final hour spent on, on that. So I won't take up any more uh, time uh, other than to introduce Mavis uh, in a bit more detail. Uh, Mavis, uh, I'm now going to say, has been involved in this work since 1974 uh, and there isn't an area of family law that she hasn't been uh, involved in researching uh, and uh, actually uh, making a, a contribution which has led to progress in what we do. Certainly on the Family Justice uh, Review, uh, David Norgrove and the panel uh, met with Mavis, I think at the very first meeting that we had uh, in a small room in the Methodist Central Hall of all places, uh, and um, uh, our contact with her uh, carried on throughout the work of the uh, review. Uh, and. Um, in every other way, she's continued to contribute. You'll see from the CV you've got um, that just in recent times, she's been a very uh, busy uh, author of books which are bang on the topic, bang up to date with what we're thinking about. So it's a privilege and a pleasure to introduce Mavis and ask her to speak for the motion. Mavis, Thank you, Andy, you very much. Um, I think you've got a choice between seeing me and hearing me. If I sit down, you can't see me, but if I stand up, you won't hear me. So are you happy if I sit? 
it's a lectern over there. Oh, you want me to go there? there. Oh, God, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Is, are these on? Are these working? Yeah. Great. Good. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. I do have a watch which I will peer at. Um, and the question is, do separating parents need the family court? Well, my short answer is yes. I mean, of course, it's a sad yes. I would be delighted if they didn't, just as I'd be delighted if nobody needed the hospital or the fire station or the police station or any of the other things that we rely on when we're in difficulty. And if every parent undergoing the stress of separation was able to be tolerant and flexible and uh, work collaboratively for the sake of the uh, best interests of their children, then they wouldn't need the family courts. But uh, as we all know, that's not the case. Um, as an academic, I have to apologize uh, for not being a practitioner, for being horribly ignorant about many, many things, so forgive me. Um, but as, as Andrew said, I've been around a while and seen a bit of this and that. Uh, so I will uh, bother you with sort of ifs and buts and airy fairy plans. And also I'd like to mention what's happening in, in two or three other jurisdictions, which I think might be helpful. Well, if we start from the beginning, we live in a democracy under the rule of law. And we know what courts are for because the Supreme Court told us in one of their wonderful ladybird book type clear sentences in the um, unison judgment a couple of years ago. Do you remember? They just said, courts exist in order to ensure that the laws made by Parliament and the common law created by the courts themselves are up to be applied and enforced. Well, that says it, doesn't it? Fine, quite so. And we're very fortunate in having a particularly civilised legal framework for this particular bit of the law in the Children Act, with welfare paramountcy having stood the test of time and the test of some, some quite um, cross onslaughts now and again. Um, and um, Brenda Hale reminded us all of that very elegantly just a couple of weeks ago at her Scarman lecture. But nevertheless, there are extremely serious concerns about the number of applications to the court about child arrangements. Uh, despite the availability and, in fact, the, the, the energetic promotion of alternative methods of dispute resolution. <clears throat> Why are we so concerned uh, about this? Are we concerned because of the cost of the state? Are we concerned because of the cost of the parents, particularly uh, in the post-LASPO world? Or are we concerned about the impact of the court experience on the welfare of the children? Well, very probably all three. Um, but <laughs> in any case, uh, the courts are clearly under extreme pressure, and particularly because they're operating under adversarial process, often without the legal representatives who used to oil the wheels. Could parents be diverted? Well, I think we should start by trying to interrogate the policy angle a little bit further. You know, what is the government trying to achieve in this area of family justice? And one thing that helps me to think about it is 
looking at the way that the department straplines about the purpose, function, scope of family justice, the way that these have changed uh, over the years. I think it's illuminating when one's trying to get through the, the muddle of how things have developed. When I first arrived at LCD in 1990, just after the Children Act, the aim of family justice was quite simple. It was protecting the vulnerable. Well, I find that clear, honourable, but potentially it can be expensive because it implies uh, uh, an active approach, um, careful examination of welfare issues. Then as we, we came up to um, David Norgrove's inquiry, 2009-10, the focus changed then from uh, the individual in need uh, to looking at how family justice was working as a system. The strapline then became promoting fair and informed settlement. And by this time, ADR was highly visible and very exciting. Well, now, with austerity, I'm sure any of you who get communications from the department will have seen this many times, uh, we have simply advancing and promoting the principles of justice. Well, it's quite hard to argue with that, but on the other hand, it is quite conveniently abstract and doesn't require a, a, a fixed budget. I think the difficulty, as we all know, is how different family law is from other parts of the law. It's about the future of vulnerable third parties, and it's not just about justice, it's about welfare. We have a legal framework which puts the children's welfare first, but how can we deliver? Well, when I first joined LCD in 1990, <clears throat> so sorry, I'm losing my voice, um, I was surprised by the level of hostility towards the legal profession in policy circles. The increase in the Family Legal Aid Bill was widely attributed to the business needs of family solicitors who were paid by the hour. So I went to have a look, and what I saw in practice was a clear culture of negotiation to settlement, skillful management of client expectations, and solicitors whose earnings were dependent on case volume, not on fighting individual battles to the death. It was actually the sharp increase in the divorce rate which was affecting the bill. At the same time, government was getting very excited about the new approach, ADR, family mediation, which at the time was not only very low cost, partly thanks to voluntary input, but also clearly good for people, encouraging individual responsibility and the development of conflict resolution skills. Well, there is a technical term for a policy which saves money and is good for people, and it's known as a silver bullet. And here it was. But uh, in this jurisdiction, as in many others, Germany, France, Spain, take-up of mediation has remained consistently low. And the government's expectation here that after LASPO, mediation would at least in part replace uh, the work of the family solicitors um, has not been fulfilled, um, as was acknowledged in the LASPO implementation review. And in fact, our research in Oxford um, had led me a while ago to question the potential for broader impact of this kind of intervention, which clearly highly skilled, clearly of great benefit to many people, 
especially if uh, accompanied by legal advice. But I was always worried about the possibility of meeting all the needs of all those who used to approach legal aid solicitors. People tended to be seeking, first of all, information about what most separating parents do, sort of proxy for what's fair. Um, then they're looking for advice as to what the options are and which one would be best uh, for them and their children. And then for support in taking the next step. Um, and mediation doesn't do all of those and also demands quite a lot of hard work from the client, which some parents at separation are not able to uh, engage with. Well, the most recent um, policy silver bullet has been digital, as you all know. And I love the way it's just digital. It's not always digital something. It's just you know, digital. Uh, and again, this approach can help with some things and not others. In France, where the family courts were in the sort of state that we're in now a while ago, um, digital administration was um, introduced and was extraordinarily helpful in leading to what they call the dematerialization of the courts, which I think is wonderful. It sounds like Doctor Who, you know, you sort of go like this and they all disappear in a puff of smoke, but actually it just meant no more paper. So that was a, a huge success, but the attempts to achieve um, uh, dispute resolution um, online, which reached their height with the Rechtweiser in the Netherlands, which you probably remember, came to a very sticky end. It, um, it was hoped, and a lot of um, legal aid money was put into it in the Netherlands, that it would cope with the majority of uh, these kinds of disputes, but in fact only 6% of separating couples ever used it. Um, about half of those managed to reach some kind of arrangement, but then the arrangements themselves were not uh, accepted by the courts for very simple reasons. You couldn't actually be sure that people were who they said they were online. So if you're making a sort of property division, you do actually know, need to know that Mr. X is Mr. X. Well, we're now at a turning point, as evidenced by this debate. And I think there's a huge need for some very careful, evidence-based, um, dare I say it, analysis. And one good thing you might like to know, good news about Ministry of Justice is always uh, nice to share. There is a new unit set up, 20 staff so far, with, it's called EEE. -E. I get the order wrong, but it means, it stands for Experiment, Evaluation and Engagement. Serious thinking. So if there's, uh, there are some uh, thoughts to look forward to, will come from there, I hope. Um, but in the meantime, I think we might learn something from other jurisdictions about what courts are for. What do you want from a court? What can it do? What can't it do? Clearly, we're asking too much of our courts uh, here at present. Well, I want to give you three examples from other jurisdictions very quickly. Australia, um, after investing heavily in providing alternative family dispute resolution, they found a continuing high level of demand for uh, court. So the Australian Institute of Family Studies was asked to have a good look at the people who persist in using court and what kind of people are they. 
are they, you know, simply bad-tempered, um, malicious, uh, whatever, uh, or what? And very careful study, I can give you um, the reference if you need it later, found um, an extraordinarily high level of um, mental illness. 59% of the court users, family court users in Australia, had some form of um, mental health issue. There's also alcohol, drug abuse, um, high levels of domestic violence, as we um, think about here too. Um, and it's... Uh, so these, these people... Separating parents are unlikely to be at their best if they've not been able to manage a relationship, not been able to manage the problems which arise from separation escalating into a conflict in spite of help from family and friends, in spite of um, help from advice services or even from um, professional uh, practitioners, especially if there are language problems or literacy problems, these people need help. And I think that if, if we understood more about uh, the characteristics of these court users, we might think twice about simply making it harder to get to court, and we might try to think more about how the courts could contribute to better outcomes for those who I think we should think about as problem families with vulnerable children rather than as simply litigants. Well, my second example... I've got three minutes. Um, two. All right, then, in, in Germany, uh, the family court is local and acts as a hub for the counselling services, which are uh, free and available, um, and uh, ADR is also uh, uh, can be accessed. And the, government, the judge is asked to resist positioning by parents based on their legal rights with respect to the child. Instead, he's asked to act as a temporary supervisor with a residual power to make decisions. And the court doesn't work towards a final decision in a conflict. It offers a binding setting for alternative dispute resolution for parents who are accompanied until they reach that decision. I think this binding place, while you... Anyway, one minute for my last example, which is really exciting. <coughs> Denmark has always used administrative procedures for dealing with parental disputes. They had no family court. But as of the 1st of April this year, 1st of April seems to be a popular date for introducing drastic legislation, doesn't it? The LASPO came in on 1st of April. Um, on the 1st of April, they um, closed down the former um, administrative agency and opened up, I, my Danish isn't very good, the Familiesrecht, <laughs> which is the House of Family Law, and which was an, uh, it is an, uh, an administrative agency, but on the same day, for the first time, they set up a family court. And a parent needing help is required to approach the, uh, the family law house um, in the digital form and will be assigned to one of three tracks, green if they only need information, amber if they might need counselling to curb the development of conflict, and red if there are clear risks associated with violence or um, uh, alcohol abuse or whatever. Um, and the House, as opposed to the court, has authority to make this decisions in some matters. These decisions can be appealed to the court, um, and it must always bring things to the court if it is something which will have 
a long-term major impact on the child's life. Children can access the family house, um, but in spite of this long tradition of administrative work, they have finally decided that a court is necessary. But instead of um, having it um, freestanding as we do, uh, it works with this agency. So you, you can travel between the two. You might or might not need a, a court, but you're under the same umbrella. So for my last two sentences, I suggest that conflicted parents are distressed parents with problems which have become disputes and that we should avoid talking about diverting them away. That looks to me like rejection. And, and I think I'm much happier if we think about trying to build on the strong central position of the family court in a more informed and supportive way looking for resources which might enable cooperation between the court and other non-court but court-related agencies. When you walk into a hospital, you don't know whether you need a plaster on your big toe or major surgery, but you're within the hospital and you're not thought to be foolish or bad if you think you need major surgery but you only need a plaster on your big toe. Someone else will um, sort it out for you. So three cheers for the CAP review which I think is beginning to move in this direction. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mavis, for getting us off to such a well-informed and uh, interesting start. So the, against the motion now, Jane Roby, who's the Chief Executive of National Family Mediation, a post that she's now held for 15 years and she's been a family mediator for 23 years. And before that, she worked in probation, family court welfare, CAFCAS, and child protection. So she's well-placed to talk both from a knowledge base of working in the courts, but also working with families outside the court uh, through the uh, regime of mediation. Jane. Well, thank you. Um, that looks like it's frozen. Never mind. Well, I'm on your agenda for today as against, and uh, I think you'll, you'll interpret that as me being here to say separating parents definitely do not need the family court. Well, let me temper that. For separating parents... The family court is not the right place, but for some, it is the necessary place. So in this presentation, I want to take you through my contention that the family courts are not the right place for separating families, that our culture has elevated their role in separation way too high, and I want to talk you through two case study examples that highlight this and conclude that we need culture change to stop family courts being seen as the be-all and end-all. So I think a word you'll have heard a lot of this year is the backstop. You remember that word. Perhaps it'll be word of the year. And that's what I think the family court should be for separating families. A backstop, a last resort. It's my contention that nowadays, in far too many cases, the court has become more than the backstop than it needs to be. 
And I want to focus on why the family court is not the right place and why it is overused and over-relied on. Well, I, w I did have a PowerPoint, but I, it's not working, so I'm going to just have to read it through you. So I want to tell you about some of the issues that separating families who come to national family mediation find themselves having to face. Don't worry, because I'm... Yeah, don't worry, because I won't be able to catch it up now. So, so some of the issues that families face, it's things like who takes Jemima to her dental appointments? Who's going to Gemma's parents' evening? Which set of grandparents is going to see Gemma on Christmas Day? And can Gemma go on holiday with her dad? And hands up here, anybody who's been dealing with Christmas contact issues in the last two weeks. Yeah, exactly. And are these legal problems? Well, no, in essence, they're not. But they've become perceived as a legal problem because separation and divorce is now framed as a legal problem or a series of legal problems, when rather separation and divorce arises, in fact, because of a series of human problems, a series of relationship problems, which in some cases have legal elements to them. And I know from experience that the family courts can not only fail to assist separating couples, it can actually get in the way of resolving their issues. So I've got a couple of case studies here uh, that I want to take you through that I would have shown you, but I'm not going to. So in 2015, NFM ran a DWP-funded programme which saw mediators working in family courts in three pilot areas. It helped parents who had become entrenched in court processes to suspend legal proceedings and meet with mediators to help them negotiate long-term arrangements for children, property and finances. The mediators coached parents to improve their negotiation skills and communicate more positively. The case that I want to tell you about was of parents who'd separated before their, the birth of their 10-year-old child, had been in court 55 times since the child's birth, had a court-appointed guardian due to parental conflict, with allegations against dad in that included drug-taking, sexual abuse and domestic abuse. <coughs> now, the parents attended a separate MIAM meeting. I am using acronyms here, but I'm assuming everybody knows what these are. It's a mediation information and assessment meeting. So the mediator had an opportunity to talk about how mediation might work as part of our standard practice, and nothing more at that stage. If the couple agreed that they wanted to try mediation, they were then offered another separate meeting. And the purpose of this meeting, the coaching session, was to provide an opportunity to look in more detail at their conflict, their concerns and anxieties, and help them both separately to work towards being able to negotiate with their ex in the upcoming mediation session. They then proceeded to joint mediation, where the mediator used the knowledge learned in the separate sessions to steer the parties through their conflict to enable them to reach agreement. Now, the agreement reached in this case was so strong that when the parents returned to court, they were able to agree with the judge that they didn't, in fact, need an order to support their plans. Now, time won't allow much detail, but I'll draw your attention to the evaluation process of that programme. And we had a system where at the start and end of the programme, they were asked to evaluate a number of things. And the outcome on this, in this particular case was quite enlightening. 
So by the end of the intervention, conflict levels had reduced from 9 and 10 respectively to 0 for both. Communication had soared from 0 and 1 to 7 and 9 for each of them. And perhaps the most striking thing about this was when asked how much do you want to work together, at the end, both scored 10 out of 10. But even more telling was that at the outset, at the first evaluation, both of them said to the same question that they were 8 and 10 out of 10, respectively. They wanted to work together. But the family court, in this case, seemed to get in the way. So I would invite you to consider what would have happened in this case if mediation had not intervened. This separated family did not need the family court. And there are many other cases from this intervention programme. Over 300 families were helped at the, at the At Court Mediation Project. Three quarters reported reduced conflict and stress and an increase in positive communication. And the top-line takeaway was that couples who had become entrenched in court conflict can, with the right help, find an exit from the drama and move on in a positive way. The problem, which is a perennial one, is that alternative services, especially mediation, are not offered routinely and courts are seen as the safest option because at least they have powers. If it's legal, it must be strong, when the truth is, those of us working near the courts know that that is not, in fact, the case. Now, that high-conflict example might not float your boat and might be untypical. So here's my second case study, and one which provides lessons for about half the population. It's a completely different situ situation, but one that demonstrates how limited the family court can be. And whether you instinctively feel for or against the question of this debate, you have to acknowledge that in any case, court powers are very restricted and limited. So this is a case of a cohabiting couple. And we all know that the law treats cohabitees differently to married couples. And it's a case of Emma and Joe. They had a 20-year relationship with two children, aged 10 and 8, the family home had been bought in Joe's name 15 years ago, partly funded by Joe's inheritance, part mortgaged. Joe was earning about 45000 a year plus a pension, and Emma was not earning and was a full-time mum. Now, if they'd been married, Emma would be likely to receive spousal maintenance until she can find work. She could share Joe's pension. She would share the home equity, depending on her housing needs, but at least 50%. But as they cohabited, unless she could show an intention that Joe would share the property, it's unlikely Emma would get anything from it. And Emma had no right to a share of Joe's pension, and she had no right to support in her own right. And in this case, in fact, it was in the precincts of the court, with both parents represented, that the barrister dropped the bombshell that Emma had no rights that put Joe in pole position. But Joe actually wanted to do the right thing by his children and his children's mum, and the court couldn't help. So Emma and Joe decided to try mediation. And in mediation, they reached an agreement. Emma got half the equity, less Joe's original deposit, and a memorandum of understanding was drawn up in mediation, and Emma's solicitor made it legally binding by a deed of separation signed by them, by them both. And the family court was actually of no use to Emma, or Joe, for that matter. So 
That's just one case. And as I'm against, I would pick something like that, wouldn't I? But we know that some 48% of children in our country are born outside a marriage. And in most cases, we also know that most people do not know that married and cohabiting people are treated differently by the law and the courts. Now, that argument for reform is different from the topic today, but is probably as pressing. And within the next few years, we're likely to find more kids born outside of marriage than within it. So is the family court going to offer any help to those children, given the circumstances we're in? No. And I would contend that the family court is not really fit for purpose, at least not fit for the purpose our culture has assigned to it in separation and divorce. In most cases, the court has become more than the backstop. It's become first base. It's a deep problem about our country's separation and divorce culture that frames it as a legal issue, defaulting separating couples to the courtroom because there are no other options or joined-up services available to deal and seal a divorce. Turning briefly to some very current and topical issues, promoting dispute resolution services, mediation and the MIAM has been categorised as a failure in the recent CAP2 review. But I actually see it more as a system failure than a failing of mediation, because all the legislation and intent to make better use of out-of-court out services, especially mediation, is already in place. It just isn't being properly used. I would also just make the point that as long as one person only attends a MIAM as a means of accessing court, mediation is never going to happen, let alone prove its worth. I would argue that there are services out there to support separating couples, but there is resistance from established practice to consider using other services. The resistance, I think, is caused by under-resourced, overstretched existing services that don't have capacity to consider alternative ways of working. And yet to continue on this path will surely bring about the collapse of the whole system. I also think nothing very much is going to change in the near future as a result of the perpetual churn in politics and Brexit. And as such, those of us working in the system have to make more of our respective skill sets and apply them strategically to make the system work better. We do need a culture change if family breakdown, divorce and separation is to be managed differently. And I think the court, as the most powerful and authoritative institution, should be leading the charge in the culture change because we have to work with what we've got. It starts with a much more robust approach to gatekeeping and the MIAM exemption and ends with judges being prepared to order as a contact activity attendance at a MIAM, something that is seldom used. It also means bringing to life and reality the ambitions of the family procedure rules where diversion from court should be considered at every opportunity. And I think that if this approach were adopted, we would quickly see courts become the backstop, the place for those who really need it. And don't get me wrong, I think every member of society has the right to have access to the legal system and justice. 
and the justice system definitely has a role to play, but as a backstop, a recourse, and not first base. So do separating families need the family court? Our culture says yes, but I think in most cases it shouldn't be that way. Thank you, Jane. Well, the first innings is over. Both teams acquitted themselves, you feel, very strongly. It's evenly matched. Depending on what happens next, we might even get as far as a super over at the, at the end. But um, fear not, Olive Craig's now coming into bat. <laughs> Olive is the senior legal officer at Rights for Women, specialising in family and criminal law, and she's well-placed to do that. She's been a qualified solicitor for uh, many years, practising in crime and family uh, but now uh, she delivers legal advice to women uh, on the Rights to Women Family Law Advice Line. Uh, and she sees and hears from them at the sharp end, both with their aspirations and their problems, but I suspect also their experience of trying to sort things out without the family court. Over to you, Olive. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to come in and, and fill in some detail from... Um, heading off from what Mavis has already said in favour of why separated parents need the family court. And I'm going to think in particular about um, why it is that we're talking about this. So we, we've heard a lot um, in particular in recent years about increases in applications to the family courts, crises in the family courts. So I'm going to think a little bit about what is, what is the picture actually like? What are the figures that we do know tell us about... Um, applications to the family court and then I'm going to um, move on to look at who are the people that are accessing the family court certainly in my experience as a practitioner um, and as somebody who speaks to women on our um, family law advice line every week. So I think we're asking ourselves this question whether or not separated parents need the family courts because there has been an awful lot of discussion about a crisis in the family courts and um, unreasonable increases in applications. I think we need to question that assumption. It's true, applications to the family courts have increased since 2014 when the Child Arrangements Programme was introduced. And I think all of the discussion about increases in applications to the family court always goes back to that date because the purpose of the Child Arrangements Programme was to try to decrease applications to the family court. But when you look back over a longer period, what uh, we're actually comparing is, is not really completely reflective of the longer um, view of what's been happening. So in 2014, there was a particularly low level of applications to the family court because of off the back of the LASPO introduced in 2013, there was a peak in applications to the family court. And it then fell because parents were not able to access legal advice. They weren't accessing legal aid. So comparing it back to that particular date means we're comparing it to what was already a low level of applications. And when we look back over a longer period, you look back at the, the current statistics in terms of numbers of applications of private children um, proceedings go back to 2011. And actually they fluctuate <laughs> around about what they're at at present. When you go back past 2011, I couldn't find any of statistics 
um, past 2011, I think because they weren't counting applications. Um, you can find out statistics of numbers of subject children um, in private law proceedings, but not applications. And looking back at the numbers of children in private proceedings, um, again, those numbers, they fluctuate a little bit. They go up and down. There was a peak around 2009, um, which is higher than what it is at present. But actually, we are round about a similar figure. So should we all just relax? There's no crisis. We're imagining it. No, obviously not. Anybody who works in the family justice system, who works supporting people who are accessing the family justice system, is very well aware that there is a crisis. But over that same period of those, those figures from around 2009 to 2019, 10 years, the Ministry of Justice's funding has been cut by 40%. So is it any surprise that there is a crisis in the family justice system? But we need to be very clear when we are thinking about what the next steps are and how we reform it, whether separated parents should be diverted away from the system because we have a crisis, or whether actually the problem is that we're not funding the system properly. It's not about irresponsible parents heading off to the family courts because they think that's the best place for them. It's about funding. And I obviously, I think, expect everybody in this room would like a properly funded justice system. So that's what the cause of the crisis is. And we need to be very clear about that. We need to be very clear as well that, you know, over that much longer period, the numbers of parents accessing the family courts, like I said, it's fluctuated, but actually it's remained around about the same. It's about 10% of separated parents, give or take. That's what it's around. So of that roughly 10% of separated parents who are accessing the family courts, those are the parents that we're really talking about when we ask this question. The roughly 90% of parents who don't access the family courts, a lot of them access mediation, and that's great, and it's successful for them. Some of them go off and they speak to lawyers and they resolve their family law disputes that way. Some of them don't. They just don't access any professionals. They make arrangements themselves. And that's fine. The parents that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about the family court, and in particular family court reform, are the ones that are actually using it, that 10%. So in my role at Rights of Women, I uh, speak to a lot of women. We, I don't personally speak to all of the women that contact <laughs> us. Um, as an organisation, we speak to about 1,500 women on our family law advice lines um, every year, roughly. Um, so we have, I think, a pretty good picture of what it is that's happening in the family justice system. And I think we're quite privileged as well that because we're, we're lawyers and we're giving legal advice, but the nature of who we are means that women, I think they tell us things that they might not always say to their lawyers. I think they also um, tell us things about their experiences of the family courts that they don't have anyone else to tell because they are representing themselves. So the majority of our callers are unrepresented um, in family court proceedings. The majority of our callers are not in family court proceedings, it's fair to say, but those that are, are representing themselves. Um, and they tell us about their experiences. So some of the uh, types of um, experiences that women tell us about, I'm going to give you a couple of case studies. 
And I'm going to be thinking about this in terms of that, that small group of separated parents who access the family courts. And we know from research that roughly 60% of um, cases, applications to the family court, have allegations of domestic abuse in them. We also know that roughly, and I say roughly because this is based on small sample research, um, so we, you know, we have to be careful about saying this is definitive, but roughly another 20% of applications have other safeguarding concerns or safeguarding allegations raised within them. Um, so we have about, give or take, 80% of the parents that are ending up in family proceedings having safeguarding concerns raised. And I'm quite happy to say they're safeguarding allegations. I don't have a problem with that. If allegations are made, they have to be resolved by the court. But who else is going to resolve them? That's the role of the court. Those parents need the family court to resolve those allegations. So I'll give you a case study. Now, this case study is it's typical. Okay? It is very much in keeping with the types of stories that we hear day in, day out on our um, family law advice line. And I think it typifies exactly why separated parents need the family court. So this caller was calling us because she wanted advice about contact. Um, she had a child who was of primary school age, reasonably young. She also had a non-molestation order um, against the father. And I've used this example because although what what's going to follow in relation to the, the child arrangements is very typical. What's unusual about this caller was that she had a non-molestation order and that order had been achieved at the end of a final hearing. The court had made findings. This is not alleged victim of domestic abuse. This was a woman who was a victim of domestic abuse. And um, this was about a father who was seeking contact. Um, part of those findings included reasonably high-risk behaviour like strangulation. So this caller actually wanted the father to have contact. She had a non-molestation order to protect her. She had made arrangements through third parties, family members, to um, facilitate contact between the father and the child. Because typical of a lot of our callers, most of the women that contact us would like some form of contact to take place. What they predominantly want is they want the abuse to stop. But they don't generally want to stop their relationship between the child um, and the parent unless they have to, and they feel they have to often. But she had managed to arrange contact between the child and the father, and that had been going along. And she was a bit concerned about the child, a little bit unsettled when the child came back from contact, um, was making comments about the types of things, again, very, very typical that we hear over and over again that the father had been saying to the child about the previous proceedings, about the order that was in place, the normal station order. There's no child arrangements <coughs> order in place in this case. Um, but she wanted the child to have a relationship. So one day the child went into school um, after contact and the child told the school that there had been an incident during contact, when the father had, uh, in this case, grabbed her by the collar and dragged her and had been angry and had shouted at her and she was scared. So the school told the social worker. 
um, and the social worker came along and did an assessment. And the outcome of that assessment was, yeah, we're worried about this, but you seem to be dealing with it pretty well. Um, so we think you should be very careful about contact, but it's up to you. So she was calling us saying, I want the father of my child to have a relationship with my child. But I am very, very worried about whether or not it is safe. I cannot be the one that puts restrictions around his contact. because He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to do what I ask him to do. I have no other option if I want the father of my child to have contact to make an application to court. Or I can say, no, I don't think it's safe. I'm not going to um, promote contact. I'm not going to support it. And it's then up to him to make an application to the court. Now, that's not an unusual example. That is typical of the bread and butter cases that the family courts are dealing with day in, day out. And those parents, whether from the perspective of the mother or the father, they need the family court to resolve that dispute. The last um, thing that I'm going to mention is, we've talked about, and, and these are, again, we're talking about rough figures. You have roughly 80% of, of applications. That's from CAFCAS data, so it's CAFCAS applications. Um, and not all applications get sent to CAFCAS, that, where there are safeguarding concerns that are raised. So what about that other 20%? Well, that 20% is going to be a real mixed bag of applications. So the types of things that we get told about, because, uh, like I said, the majority, as reflective of the family courts, the majority of the callers to our advice line are survivors of domestic abuse or raise some form of safeguarding issues, but not all of them are. And the other types of issues that separating parents need the family court to deal with are issues where you have a genuine dispute between two parents about what is in the best interests of their child, what is best going to meet their child's welfare. That's the legal test. That's what they need to um, decide on. And they disagree about what it is. And a very easy example to understand is relocation cases. So a caller tells us, I came to the UK um, from another country, perhaps as a result of this relationship, we have children, that relationship has broken down, I want to go home, and I want to take the children with me. And the other parent, quite understandably, says, well, I don't want my children to grow up in another country, I want them to grow up here, where I am. Both of those parents believe that what they're doing is in the child's best interest. They both want to be able to separate, move on with their lives, but it's not possible for both of them to be right. And somebody has to make a decision. And that's exactly where the family courts are stepping in, in those small number of cases. Or take, I hate to use gender stereotypes, but we do, we do come across them. They exist for a reason. Take a caller who tells us that she doesn't feel that she can trust the father of her child. The relationship is broken down because um, he has cheated on her. In fact, such an extreme example that he has been living with both her and the children and the other woman at the same time. And she tells us that she feels devastated by the end of the relationship. <coughs> she feels like the last however many years of her life have been a lie 
that the relationship she's had with the father of her children has been a lie and that she cannot trust a single word he says. Now, it would be lovely. In an ideal world, we'd be able to turn around and say to that parent, well, get your act together. Yeah, think about the children. But that's just not realistic. In some cases, separating parents are going through what is emotionally an incredibly difficult time in their lives. And what they sometimes need is to have, in that very small number of cases where this is going to be the case, they need to have an authority that will make those decisions when they are emotionally unable to do so. So I think when, we, are, when we, we ask this question, do separating parents need the family court? And the reason why we're asking it is because, yes, there's a crisis in the family courts. We need to think about what is it that's really caused that crisis. And when we're thinking about how to improve the situation, how to reform the family courts, because I work at an organisation that has a lot of ideas about reform of the family courts, then we need to be thinking about who are the families that are actually accessing the family courts. And we should be designing the system around them and not around who we, the professionals, would all like them to be. Thank you, Olive, for that very powerful and insightful uh, address. The final speaker, and the speakers are doing really well at keeping... Uh, to time, hint, hint, Heather, uh, <laughs> is Heather McGregor, who, as you'll have seen from your, the CVs you've got, has had over most of the last four decades a whole career in family law. And her particular perspective that she's going to share with us this evening is the last 20 years as a deputy judge and then a full-time judge at the principal registry dealing with these cases. Uh, you'll have also seen that Heather's earlier career was as an archaeologist, so she's presu presumably been chosen because we hope she'll dig up an argument <laughs> against the motion. Over to you, Heather. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> you will be. Um, well, looking round uh, this audience, uh, I have to acknowledge that uh, given that many here have a serious investment in the family uh, in family court-based solutions. Jane and I have got something of a mountain uh, to overcome. Uh, you've been variously described in the literature as the stakeholders and a cross-section of key professionals working in the family justice system. So in the light of this, it might be said that given we're now in December, asking you to agree with um, us, that's Jane and I, is really akin to asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. Having said that, it did occur to me, um, as I heard the radio this morning, that the four shortlisted entries for the Turner Prize had decided to form themselves into a collective, that in the interests of the sisterhood, uh, we might actually do the same. But anyway, getting back to the fact I have to be adversarial, here we go. Uh, what I do want to say is that because I know that you do all have a serious investment in the family justice system, uh, I want you, uh, and I am relying on you, in fact, to acknowledge that children and families are better served if their disputes are resolved away from the family court. I accept, however, that no system, be it in court or out of court, will work unless it is properly and consistently funded. 
The evidence, however, does suggest that the very issue of parental conflict which brought the parties to court is often aggravated by the process of court proceedings and can be particularly harmful to children. Research on this topic, which has been referred to by every president of the family division, from Sir Nicholas Wall to the current incumbent, Sir Andrew McFarlane. But what is curious about this research is that notwithstanding it indicates that while on the whole, and perhaps for obvious reasons, people find the experience of being in the family court far from positive, most of those who make applications have made few, if any, attempts to resolve their difficulties by any other means. As the President said, applications have become the default option, akin at times to going to A&E uh, for some minor ailment, even though that is likely to involve spending hours waiting to speak to a stressed and overworked junior doctor, or in the court system, read someone like me. The way the NHS works, in fact, could be said to be analogous to the court system, in that such funding that is available is largely spent on the consequences of the illness rather than prevention, and that the court and in the courts and like the court system, there is little or any joined-up thinking uh, between the two, or indeed between treatment and post-treatment services. In seeking to divert applicants from the court, I do not seek to minimise the impact that separation can have on a family, but rather to emphasise that such tools that we, the family court, have at our disposal are mostly ill-suited to resolving the root cause of the problems presented. In, his rec in recent lectures, the President has spoken about the unrealistic expectations most have of what the judicial process can achieve. And this fact, along with the very limited information available to parents about forms of alternative dispute resolution, clearly fuels what I had experienced as the inexorable rise of private law applications. The vast majority of these applications relate to simple child arrangements order. That is to say, where the child should live and how much time should be spent with each parent. These disputes can and often do involve social, educational, and even mental health issues, but rarely, as the President said, do they involve legal issues that require a legal response. Rather, as he said, they are disputes that arise from a breakdown in the key relationships within a family, and in particular between the children's parents. In his May lecture entitled The Children Act 1989, 30 Years On, the President stated that the concept of parental responsibility was at the core of both private and public law proceedings of the Act, and he quoted with approval the introduction to the textbook Children Act in Practice by White, Carr and Lowe, where the author stated the Children Act 1989 brought about the most fundamental change in our child law the Act has been widely regarded as a structural masterpiece, providing an admirable framework for the promotion of the interest of children and families within a system of support services and court intervention where appropriate. On behalf of those of us who've apparently been toiling at the family bar for 40 years, um, <laughs> I'm not that old, um, 
practicing in family law when the Children and Young Persons Act 1969 was still in force, I can but echo the praise for the introduction of an act which gave parents the right to have non-means-tested legal representation and access to court papers before facing a hearing which permitted the removal of their children, and in particular, which established a clear threshold of harm before any state interference could be sanctioned. But what a private law? Where is the system of support services? And where is the concept of court intervention only where appropriate or necessary? As noted above, applications in private law are all too often the default option. There's no equivalent to Section 31.2 to be established before applications made. And I accept that one of the... Uh, I accept that the introduction of an attendance at a Mayam as a precondition to issuing applications was, one, was on one level an attempt by the government to deal with this. However, it's widely acknowledged that certainly in that respect, it's been a complete failure. Further, whatever Section 1.5 might say about the no-order principle, the reality is that once in the court system, the parties want an order. This is notwithstanding, as I say, to the President's references in his May lecture to the words of both Baroness Hale and the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay, about the intentions behind the Act, which, as Lord Mackay said, was that families should be left to sort matters out for themselves unless it can be shown that without a court order, the child's welfare would suffer. Baroness Hale likewise stated... Bringing up children is the responsibility of their parents, and the state's role is to help rather than interfere. In the section of his May lecture under the subheading Making Contact Work, the President referred to the efforts made by those conducting the various reviews of the Act over the last 30 years, um, and he spoke in particular of the changes in terminology custody to residence, then to living with, access to contact, then to spending time with, as being designed, as he put it, to fix child arrangements without enhancing or diminishing, or diminishing parental responsibility or the status of the child's parents. I would hazard a guess that every judge hearing a private law case does his or her best to emphasise to the parents <coughs> that they are the ones with parental responsibility which means they're the ones who ought to be making the decisions in relation to their children. The problem is, as I say, people come to court because they want an order, and once in the court system, this unfortunately becomes their sole focus. The reality is, however, that the very act of a judge making an order is the antithesis of parents exercising parental responsibility, as it is the judge telling them how often their children should see the other parent. Should it be Friday night? Should it be Saturday morning? Should it be midweek? Should there be a shared care arrangement? Of course, in some respects, I can't blame parents for their focus on a court order, as in fact often they're told by others, police, social services, etc., that they need an order. Uh, and indeed, in a, a recent public law case, one paragraph of the threshold I had to deal with said that the failure of a parent to get a court order had caused the child to suffer significant harm. I'm afraid I didn't make that finding. <laughs> Trouble is that the making of the court order rarely, in fact, solves the problem. 
if little or nothing is done to deal with the issue that led the application to be made in the first place, which is why so many cases then revert back to court at the first sign of trouble. Although I'm reluctant to generalise and acknowledge, as Tolstoy said, that each unhappy family is an unhappy in its own way, my own experience indicates that the inability to communicate lies at the heart of many of the difficulties experienced. Indeed, it is a sad fact that the greater the means we have to communicate, the more likely it is that both parents will say to the judge, we just can't communicate. And I cannot be the only judge whose heart sinks when faced with 20 or so pages of screenshots of WhatsApps or text messages where Anglo-Saxon appears to be the only common language between the parents. In the June report of the Private Law Working Group, a review, a review of the Child Arrangements Programme, it was stated that 60% of all applications proceed behind beyond the Fahydra stage. As far as I can gather, there is no research as to the, spe the specifics of these cases, but again, from my own experience, I would say that there is not necessarily any correlation between the length of time a court case, case takes to conclude and its actual complexity. Rather, it depends on the personality of the individuals and their investment in continuing their dispute. Currently, we as judges have little at our disposal, as between the Fahydra stage and the next DRA stage, acronyms abound, that is likely to reduce the difficulties, the most oft used being the SPIP, as I say, yet another acronym, a lecture in itself, perhaps. How litigants are supposed to, as I say, deal with this, I know not. But the research about SPIPs quoted in the Private Law Working Group is interesting in that while superficially it appears that most parents, often apparently as high as 95%, find these programs helpful in making things either better for their child, improving their understanding of the impact of separation and the effect of parental ch conflict on their child, curiously only 45% agreed that the program was actually helpful in sorting out child arrangements with the other parent which I perhaps unthinkingly had thought might be at least one of its objectives. Further, although we might have a Section 7 report by the time of the dispute resolution appointment, again, it's unlikely that CAFCAS will be able to make recommendations to deal with the issue of parental conflict other than to suggest attendance at a SPIP or indeed medi mediation. And the difficulty is often, particularly in relation to mediation, but by the time the parties have reached this stage, they are further entrenched in their desire for a judge-made solution. I do not say this as a criticism of Kafka, simply to note that as an organisation, it appears to have ended up with the vast majority of its resources given up to the reporting, rather than being able to have a more active role within the family. I note again from the private law working group that a staggering 25% of Kafka's budget is given over to the preparation of the safeguarding letter. As I say, there's no real dispute that the court is in fact a blunt instrument when it comes to having the time or resources to fully investigate the long-standing, the often long-standing issues leading to family breakdown or, more importantly, having identified those issues, then to provide a solution. The question must also be whether it would ever be the right forum to do so. 
In his lecture, Domestic Abuse in the Family Court, the president referred to the blog of a barrister called Lucy Reed, who I have to say I'd be delighted to have in my court, when she said, judges are not superhuman. Those who demand that they should magically find out the objective truth as they say it, as they see it, may be disappointed. They do their best on the information available, but real lives and relationships are messy and subjective and are rarely captured in objective con contemporaneous records and often, uh, uh, and often reimagined or reinterpreted for an entirely un understandable reasons by those who have lived them. Lucy was speaking, I understand, in the context of fact-finding hearings uh, where allegations of domestic violence have been made, an issue which has been made infinitely more difficult for judges by the lack of proper representation for litigants resulting from the decimation of the legal aid budget. But what she says appears to me to be equally applicable to much of the background to family breakdown. Parents think they need a family court for a number of reasons. They may think, having paid the fee, that other than turning up, nothing more will be required of them. These are the parents who say, you judge, make the decision. We can't communicate. I want an order. He, she doesn't listen, or variations on that particular theme. There are others, as identified in the private law working group, who simply do not know what the alternatives, what, the, what alternatives are available, and who fear in any event that they may not be affordable. And indeed, for many, they are not affordable. As is acknowledged, children can experience considerable harm if they find themselves in the midst of continuing conflict, which then may lead them to losing the relationship with one of their parents. This harm inevitably has knock-on effects both in social, educational, social and educational achievements and often in relation to mental health difficulties. Notwithstanding that, you will find little information about what services are available to families experiencing such problems in the expected public spaces, schools, libraries, GP surgeries, or indeed, I might add, the courts themselves. In Australia, you've already uh, heard this from uh, Mavis, they have pioneered what is referred to as family relationship centres, which offer wide-ranging support to families, including, interestingly, support during the relationship. These services can involve simply parents or, where appropriate, also the children. Their aim is to ensure that either through the services available at the centres or by further referrals, families are helped to make more, the more enduring changes in their behaviour that are in turn more likely to lead to positive and lasting arrangements for children post-separation. Such centres, I add, are funded by the Australian government. The private law working group advocates a similar service called the Supporting Separating Families Alliances, which I have to say trips slightly less easily off the tongue and I would also say that any acronym which involves the letters F-A might need to be avoided. <laughs> but the key issue is having a one-shop venue where parents can access information and support. And although I cannot speak for areas outside London, it is again apparent from the private law working group that there are many services which are already available, but what is lacking is information and proper coordination. My own view, and I'm waiting for the sharp intake of breath, 
My own view is that CAFCAS would be the appropriate organization to oversee this, in that it has expertise in terms of the various levels of support required, and thus would be the best place to address what support services should be available in-house at the hub or center, such as contact facilities, mediation, parenting classes, etc., and what additional services would be retired for more intense work, such as family therapy or domestic violence intervention, such resources being provided in partnership with other stakeholders. I'm not, of course, saying CAFCAS would provide all the services, simply that they would have an overarching role in the coordination and assessment of the services needed. CAFCAS already undertakes, by way of its safeguarding work, the all-important triaging, and it is an ideal service then, and it is an ideal service to make the onward referrals to further appropriate services. <coughs> My idea would be that the parents could have access to the initial CAFCAS triaging, either through a website, a telephone, or indeed, in an old-fashioned sense, a face-to-face -face service at the centre or hub. In many ways, similar to the way many mental health services operate triaging services. The advantage of CAFCAS undertaking this role is, A, it already exists. It's a universal service in the sense of England and Wales, but operates at a regional level. It has statutory existence, importantly, and has statutory powers to obtain information from third parties. It has established relationships in addition with third-party providers, and importantly, it has a cadre of practitioners who have immense experience with families and the consequences for children where there is parental hostility. And last, but by no means least, in the sense of joined-up thinking, it has a direct link to the court. I accept, of course, that this would um, uh, involve a substantial uh, change to Kafkas's uh, remit and, of course, would also require further funding. But it does seem to me that without such a body, the ad hoc types of arrangements that currently exist, limited as they often are by short-term funding, are in essence doomed to fail. I would suggest, therefore, again another rather revolutionary idea, that save in limited circumstances, applications under Section 8 should not be permitted until parties have, in fact, uh, undertaken the CAFCAS triage and attended the services re recommended by CAFCAS. This would at all times, however, be subject uh, to the assessment by CAFCAS itself uh, as to whether the parent should then be diverted back into the court system. I recognise, of course, what is said about a large, the large number of cases where domestic violence is an issue. But a, so? Are you, are you Almost up. there, okay. almost there. I would have finished if you hadn't interrupted. Yes, but I'm, <laughs> I'm always, always very hesitant to interrupt a judge when she's... <laughs> but as noted by the President <laughs> in his lecture on this topic... This is another good bit. <laughs> ..when he quoted Sir Alan Ward, there is a spectrum of abuse and an index of harm. There will be cases where the abuse and harm is at the high end of the spectrum, and thus court proceedings, either in the criminal courts or the family courts, will of course be inevitable. But fortunately, there, are, there is a majority of cases on the lower end of the spectrum which should be able to be dealt with by means of appropriate support services, both for the victim and the perpetrator. 
In these cases, in my view, it is not always necessary to have a fact-finding hearing, as it is possible to work with parents, as social workers, of course, do day in and day, day out, without court, court intervention. Indeed, it may also, it may be more likely that there will be greater willingness to engage such services if they are part of a holistic approach linked to parent-child relationships. Finally, what of the I need, I want court order brigade? It's often said that the out-of-court process doesn't work because it lacks the certainty of a court order. If this is correct, then the processes described above should lead parents to coming to a detailed parental agreement, which could then be recorded and kept on file at the relevant hub, which could then be referred to if problems arose. In conclusion, therefore, please note the words of the motion. This is not about abolishing the family court but rather it is about providing appropriate services to those who need help and being able to exercise their parental responsibility in ways that best serve their children's welfare. Parents may say they need a family court, but what they often mean is that they want someone else, that is to say the judge, to make decisions for them. And as that great family man Sir Mick Jagger once said, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might get what you need. Thank you. Heather, thank you very much for that wise and, and warm and pithy contribution. Um, that I found myself in agreement with much of what you had to say, rather spookily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't want to reinvent it. <laughs> um, before we move to the questions and answers, uh, people... Uh, get up and give these contributions. They don't just drop into their laps and, uh, and onto a piece of paper. It takes a lot of thought. So I think we all ought to thank each of the four speakers for what they've done so far. Right, now it's your turn. We've got about 40 minutes, and um, uh, really we're looking for contributions which are questions of the panel, uh, or thoughts on what's been uh, said. Uh, the whole event is going to be transcribed and put onto the Family Justice Council website, and there'll also be a podcast, uh, a, a, an audio recording uh, of it available, so you need to know that before you speak. Uh, could you each uh, identify yourselves with your name and your organisation? And I'll be, be firm to the finishing time at <coughs> 7. Everyone's been told at 7, and we'll hold to... That. But we've got 40 minutes now. There are two roving mics, Daphne here and Paula at the back of the room. Who's going to go first? All right, there we are. That. Her Honour Judge Mellonby from Watford. Um, these are my own thoughts, not speaking on behalf of Watford Court. Um, I'd like to associate myself with those against the motion. Um, do separating parents need the family court? Um, in the time-honoured, or recently time-honoured fashion of Parliament, perhaps I could propose an amendment. <laughs> uh, and that would be, do children need the family courts to sort out their separating parents? <laughs> it is absolutely bonkers that us judges are having to say whether or not children should be collected from Gordano services or the Delamire services. Uh, and it's not an original thought. Um, sometimes a judge whom not who I know um, has
has said, be careful what you ask for because it will be Scotch Corner. Hmm. And my hmm. goodness, they come up with a solution. So I applaud the suggestion of some family resolution service um, and some triage system so the hard-pressed judges at the coalface can use their skills and their legal skills for sorting out issues of protection and welfare rather than the parents' bitter arguments and conflict. I've had the unfortunate situation in the last week of having to deal with a contact application in a private law situation where the father was in person, the mother got funding, and I had to hear from an 11-year-old who said she had been raped by her father. I did not have the resources uh, of a lawyer to ask questions of that child, and I felt that we as the family court were doing so much harm. And uh, we are not being faithful to doing justice to these children, and we have to remove the bitter minor conflicts away from the court arena and concentrate as the Children Act intended us to to protect vulnerable children from abusive parenting and not to sort out conflicted parents. Thank you. I'm not going to come to the panel after each contribution, but I'll turn to see whether anyone wants to make an observation about that or, or not. Only that's one for us. Yes. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> this, is, this is meant to be a friendly debate. <laughs> Melanie, the, in the middle there. Uh, I'm Melanie Crew from uh, Kafkas Legal, and I just want to ask um, Olive and Mavis. I noted what Olive said about uh, that there were perhaps 20% of cases that was were really a, a dispute between parents about what's in the best interest of their child, so taking away the risk element. And we know that the courts, those decisions are made in court by lawyers, um, judges usually being lawyers in the past. And I just wondered if you had an idea of what other profession might perhaps be better placed to make those decisions. Is there another profession other than law that might make better decisions about those cases where there isn't a risk? Right. It would be very nice if there was, <laughs> is my answer. But I, uh, and, and the other th the thing about lawyers making decisions is lawyers will advise making decisions. Uh, as, as, sorry, I can't see you. <laughs> uh, as as, as Kafkas does, this is your, this is your role. Olive? Um, no, I mean, like I said, we have lots of suggestions for improvements to the family court and the family justice system as a whole. Um, but ultimately, there has to be somebody who can adjudicate. So that perhaps is with advice, with advice from other professionals who have met with the children, who can feed back in terms of what's in the children's best interest, who can work with parents. Wouldn't it be lovely if there were people out there, not just everybody was represented, but that also everybody had a bit of emotional support going through proceedings. It would be lovely if there was a team of people around every family. 
Um, but ultimately, somebody has to adjudicate, and that's what judges do. They're making decisions based on the law. That's, that's the role of the courts. Thank you. Yes, gentlemen, the front caught my eye first. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm Fred Punsimi. Uh, I'm a lay magistrate um, in, uh, in London. I also sit in the youth and the um, adult uh, criminal courts. And I also sit in the domestic abuse <coughs> adult uh, criminal court, in fact, which I was doing yesterday. And I'm uh, chair-elect of the Great London Family Panel um, for uh, coming in. Um, so I was reflecting, as all the various things I do as a magistrate, on what I find most useful for that range of things that I do. And I have to say, I think the single sitting I find most useful is sitting in a Fahedra court. And that's um, because quite often we resolve issues at that very first hearing, uh, particularly in Central, where we would, where the Kafkas officer uh, would have very likely seen children. I know that's not available in, um, in other courts within London. I don't know what the situation in the rest of the country is. But for me as a lay magistrate hearing cases, um, I feel it's where we are most effective. And one of the reasons I think we're effective, well, there's more than one reason. One reason is the, the immediate support of the CAFCAS officer. Sometimes you get the immediate input of the child. But I think the authority of the court does help. So I very much um, endorse the point made by Mavis, if I may, um, um, with her analogy of you go to a hospital and you don't know whether you, you need a plaster or something much more serious. Um, a lot of parents are in that position when they come to court. And uh, I think us as lay people are in a position to resolve things, sometimes immediately. And also, it's not that unusual where parties want it resolved and we say, no, it's not appropriate and we have to go to the next stage. And I just, I think... Um, so, coming from that background, I would say that, yes, separating parents do need family courts, but it doesn't always need to be um, legal experts who make those, <coughs> those decisions. The lay magistracy have a role as, as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Do any of the four of you want to comment on that? No. Thank you. Well, I mean, I just suppose what, what the uh, private law working group says, you know, of those cases that are capable of resolution so early, if they'd had another hmm. outlet, as it were, hmm. need they have been in the family justice system in, in the first place? I mean, the, the other thing in relation to statistics is of the cases that we do resolve, uh, and I'm a great supporter of children being at court from a certain age, um, because I think it does help, but we still don't know what the statistics are of, of those ones coming back. You know, mm. you can have a first flush of enthusiasm and then mm. because mm. you haven't given them many tools to mm. deal with things, mm. they yeah. then come back. So yeah. I think that would, that would be the point I mean. Yes. Right, behind Madeline and then Jane. Um, I'm Madeline Weird and I'm a circuit judge at East London Family Court. Um, I'd like to ask Mavis, I don't know if she or any of the other panel members know the answer to this, 
But um, in those jurisdictions that don't have a fully adversarial family court system as we do, what do they do with the cases that involve serious disputed allegations of harm? Is there a better way than our way, which is the, the full-blown um, court battle? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, some of the Scandinavian settings, um, matters will be resolved. Anything to do with children goes to children's services. It's, it's a children matter. Um, does that help you? So it, it goes to... It, I mean, if, if we had... During the days when they wouldn't, because it was me, but when um, social work was sort of at its height and the um, children's officers were uh, extraordinarily expert and highly respected, uh, it's that sort of setting in which decisions would be made, unless, of course, you're approaching criminal activity. Hmm. But I was just struck, we, I've quoted this publicly before, we went to... Um, Sweden with the Family yes, Justice yes. Review and looking at public law proceedings yes. and um, discussing with about 10 social workers in the meeting. Uh, and they said the care, the care hearings, this is public law, um, typically take two hours. That's the final hearing. And so I said, what do you do about fact-finding? And they didn't really have a concept of fact-finding. So I said, well, what do you do if you've got a baby and there's a fracture at the end of the long bone and the elbow? And clearly someone has yanked the child, uh, and the child spends half the day with the childminder and half the time with the parents. How do you tell whether it's the childminder or the parents? And the response of the social workers was, oh, I don't think we'd be going to court for just one fracture of a baby. <laughs> uh, and we tried that with the judge the next day, and she said, no, they wouldn't come for something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. I think Mavis is right. It's, it's, it's absorbed within the social services who make a, take a view um, uh, and uh, if you don't agree with the view, then there doesn't seem to be a mechanism for challenging it in the way that we we have. We've got the, you know we've got a culture that, that does that, but it's, it's really strikingly different mm. over there. I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty expert assessment. It is. It's, it's, it is. No, I'm not. not, not but they have. They are very canny, and, the, yeah. and there's also a culture over right. there. Going back to what you were saying about the golden days, mm. if they go to the social workers for help and advice and accept the help and mm. advice, yeah. there's a feeling that the social workers are on their yeah. side, which we have lost. Yeah. Yes. Um, Jane was next, and then the lady in the middle. Thank you. Um, my name's Jane Proben, and I also sit at the East London Family Court, but um, my court is in Croydon, which has heavy demands on it, as you can imagine. Um, what, what I've taken from all of the speakers is really what should the family court look like and the range of services which might be available, which would inevitably um, separate, frankly, the wheat from the chaff, and those serious cases which judges in our system have to deal with would remain in our courts. But um, I, I anticipate um, a substantial majority of applications would be dealt with um, within a wider uh, and um, more service-based spectrum. It, it's hugely unfortunate that we don't have those resources, um, but it was extremely li interesting to listen to all of the speakers who really, whilst <coughs> arguing from different perspectives, seem to be making that one key central point. Um, but where, where we go from there is <laughs> mm. not a matter for me, of course. Mm. 
Yeah, so you're, you're more viewing it as the Turner Prize solution <laughs> that, that really... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that, well, they, they, they weren't necessarily at odds no. with each other. No. And um, there we are. Now, in the middle there. Yeah. Hello, my name's uh, Dr Jane Christian-Dust from Keele University and um, the convener of the CLOCK project, which was initiated as a direct response to LASBO. Mm. Um, and it's a collaborative project. So I'm just um, picking up on um, Heather's point with regard to the support services in court. And we've had quite a, you know, since we've been running since 2012, and the objective was to signpost litigants in person out of the court, our, our district judge, I'm sorry, our designated family judge was very keen that we weren't just welcoming people to the court, but our aim was to try and signpost out to services. Um, and we have a collaboration of um, rape crisis, uh, domestic violence services, housing, um, CAFCAS, um, and we've since cascaded to eight courts um, across England. The difficulty we're facing is actually those cases are being signposted back to us. Now, that may be because I think the, the Turner Prize is that we all want a properly funded legal system. Um, and that, that was echoed throughout. But the difficulty is, is that there seems to be, especially with the Division of Public Law Reform and Private Law Reform, the crossover cases between the public and private law domain. Um, and many of the cases that are signposted <coughs> to us are from our local authority children's services, um, as indeed they're from GPs and from schools. So you could argue that because we don't have funded services, we don't have anywhere for the cases to go, in which case it would be better if those services were better resourced. But you could also argue, um, and I, I would uh, stand with this argument, that the serious allegations of risk of harm to children do need the fact that local authorities, uh, rape crisis, domestic violence are all signposting back in is saying that actually we need court intervention as part of a holistic collaborative mm. project. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's helpful. Does anyone want to comment on that? Or imagine all four of you are nodding. Just, just, <laughs> just to say how brilliant Clark is. Yes, um, no, I, I hear, wish hear, it was hear, everywhere. Hear, hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very perceptive. Ah, no, the, the, well, the lady next to you caught my eye and then in the middle here. Uh, hello, my name is Sarah McElroy. I'm a barrister and I'm also a postgraduate research student at the University of Exeter. Um, I wanted to just sort of, I, I think there was a, a, a general agreement that the family justice system is in need of reform at out of court point. And um, I think there was also a, a, a general view that some people will always need a family court, though not necessarily the majority. I'd like to ask the panel, what do you think is the most needed reform to those in the court system? So those who the holistic services can't help, those who the ADR services can't help, for those who have to go into the court, what would you say is the most needed reform to the process or the procedures that we currently have? Tear up LASPO, easy. Well, I think also, once we've made our decision, helping us have the tools to put that decision into effect. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, one of the difficulties at the moment um, in relation to enforcement, uh, you know, if I see another section of whatever it is, 11 something something, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's hopeless. And uh, the reality is a lot of people know that we don't really have much power to enforce the orders. No. We've made an enormous expense, both emotional and actual pound, shillings and pence. Um, so, I mean, I'd like us to have some, you know, as I said with the analogy with the, the NHS, an awful lot of money spent on, on having the big operation and then nothing spent on, you know, the physio or the this, that and the other that actually gets you on your feet uh, and making the operation successful. That's, that's what I'd like. Hmm. Hmm. Um, do you want a response? From yep, what, Jane, yeah, yep. I mean, it is about resourcing, isn't it? And providing the right level of service for the people that need it. And all we've got is the court and very little else. Um, and people do need other things. I, I, I mean, I, I do think that there is a cultural issue that people who are divorcing and separating say, right, I'll see you in court. Why would you do that? Okay, yeah, I think, um, yes, tear up last bow, but I think we also, we can think about reforms in different, I think about reforms in different layers, so we need legal aid back for children proceedings, and let's bring them back for, you know, all other family proceedings great, but specifically for children proceedings, private children proceedings, um, and we need to ban direct cross-examination. It can only be done with primary legislation. It's <laughs> horrific that it's still happening. Those are small reforms. In terms of big picture reform, I think we need to be thinking about the whole model um, and our, our whole approach um, to the way in which we do family justice. As I mean, family justice, like I said, I work across criminal and family law and, and um, working within the women's sector, working with domestic violence support services, um, you know, they think about people holistically, about all of the problems they have, and the family court is so separate, it sits so separately from everything else that's going on in people's lives, and that just seems like a really silly approach um, to take. So I, th I think in terms of big picture reform, we need to be thinking about the whole model, the whole approach, but specific reforms today, LASPO, direct cross-examination. And That's going maybe. back to your report. Um, the Family Justice uh, Otherwise, mm -hmm. occasionally known as the Law Grove report, but law other people in the room were extremely... <laughs> now, there was a hand at the, the middle of the back. Yep. I'm Cheryl Morris. I'm from the official solicitor's office, but what I actually want to talk about is I am very, very <coughs> old. I am so old that as a solicitor, I remember the green form. Yes. Now, it seems to me that a lot of the members of the judiciary who have spoken have been talking about the trivia which they are having to deal with. And it leaves them without time to concentrate on the really important things. Now, while I was in practice, I, I was really sad. I, I worked in pretty... <coughs> low coupon areas and people would come in with really silly disputes about or really small disputes about say contact and they never went to court because I had 
a Rolodex. Does anybody remember Rolodex? Um, which had all the various voluntary organisations in the area. And I would write a letter to the other side, who'd also get Greenform Legal Aid, and within two or three letters, we'd sort it out. And the courts never <coughs> saw it. And it seems to me that, yes, tearing up LASPO would be a good thing. And it would also save the judges an awful lot of time. Can I add one sentence? Yep. Just thinking of um, Jane's example of the inhabiting <coughs> couples issues, you know, 10 minutes with a family solicitor would have dealt with that one. Wouldn't have needed your whole yeah. green form yeah. time even. And I, I remember green form and rhododex, but letters, I've forgotten. Letters, <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Michael. Um, yeah. Michael Lefkovich from the charity Families Need Fathers. Um, first of all, I'll just say on LASPO, I think LASPO inflicted, has inflicted terrible, frightful damage to children in this country. Having said that, to simply revert back to pre-LASPO days isn't going to solve the problem. And I'm on the side overall of those who are saying that we don't need the family court other than as a backstop, mm. but we need something else. We need an intervention of perhaps, you know, I went to um, a conference on shared parenting this uh, the last couple of days, and there were presenters from Sweden, and they're now um, testing out family coordinators who have the power to make decisions in the family about what the arrangement should be, get involved straight away, early intervention. Children can't wait for three, six, 12 months for the courts to make decisions. It's too harmful. It's not a child-appropriate time frame. So we need something different. But that family coordinator has the backstop of the court so that if there's something goes wrong, they can come back and give evidence as an expert witness um, so people know what, what to do and actually can move things forward. I think that's a much, much better solution than just trying to revert back to where we were. And one minor correction, if I might be permitted, uh, the suggestion that only 10% of people go to court and 90% don't, as Sir Andrew, you reported in one of your recent um, lectures, that figure has been very much revised now with Kafka's thinking that we're actually nearer to 38% who go to family court. Uh, the old figure was based on some ancient old survey which was not designed for the purpose it was being used. Um, so it is a huge number of people and we need to be thinking how it is that jurisdictions like Sweden don't have a higher incidence of serious issues with children, mm. but only 2% go to court versus R38. Yeah. Did the parenting coordinator, did the parents agree to be bound by what the parenting coordinator... They are obliged to follow what the parenting coordinator... That's, that's, in, the, that's in the law? So well, the, the I don't know if it's in the law. I'm not, I, I'm, right. I've, I've just seen the presentation and it would yeah. have been useful to get to answer, ask more questions yeah, would be. of would the be. trial, yeah. and that's something which we need to do. Uh, but, but clearly they have the authority of the court, if you mm. like, behind them, yeah. and they have the power to decide what the arrangement should be, and they can intervene and assist in, in contact arrangements yeah. if necessary. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. It's interesting, by the way, that since a few Supreme Court judgments recently in Spain, uh, joint care of children has been really, really going up in the last five, six, seven, eight years. So. Any, any comment on, on uh, that? I would like to see the reference of that 38% figure. Yes, I and mean, I, I used it, and then <coughs> immediately that led to a flurry of emails from various academics mm. saying, hang on, and I'd got it from Kafka. So there is a, a hang on. 38% of what? Of all the separating couples in the country. Uh, <laughs> a 
I don't know. No, well, no, they, 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 we're not going to get into it. <laughs> but there's a, a, and Liz, Liz Trinder has a. Liz. Liz. I remember that I know where the ten percent thing comes yeah, from, and it's quite old. But thirty-eight percent. I need to know of what. No, it's like when yeah. I used to teach MOJ officials how to interpret <coughs> figures. One of the classic uh, tricks we used to play was tell them about a. Uh, you've got to look at the sample. If, if you, uh, we would tell them about this this survey, which found that fifty percent of the population had walked on the surface of the moon. And they'd all go, "You're mad!" You say, "Well, the sample is Mr. and Mrs. Buzz Aldrin." Mm. I just yeah. leave that thought with you. We're not going to do it now, but there's a yeah. serious need to try and get a view as to just how many, uh, what proportion of the po population are coming to the family court. Because uh, in terms of public policy terms yes, and course. putting resources, if it's but only 10%, is it, is it, divorcing, is it, 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 it used to be said that only 10% come, come and only 10% and so only come and only 10% of the 10% fight. Exactly, that was the old But that's a tiny... Uh, exactly. Amount, but our, my feeling is that it's in terms of the population whole, we're seeing a very substantial number of people coming. But whether it's 38 but I, or 10, I, would, I, I think it I really would, like would be really helpful have to have some sound uh, statistics. It, yeah. Now, lady, has next caught my eye, and there's someone right at the back. But here, this this lady first. It's something to do with the lighting. I can't see right at the back, but I'll get down to you. Hello, um, Caroline Bowden. I'm on the uh, Family Law Committee of the Law Society and their representative on the Family Mediation Council and old enough to know about green forms and fill women as well. <laughs> um, so with my Law Society hat on, just to echo about a post-LASBO world, uh, we are obviously very active in promoting the early legal advice, bringing back legal aid for modest amounts, really, but just for that vital triage that other people have stated. And with the mediation hat on, that can also be linked to referral into mediation, which is far more successful when it's done at an early stage. Mm. And when I find as a mediator that uh, when we get couples at an early stage or just one, we are doing enormous amount of triage. Now that's not captured by any data, mm. but if we see mm. one person because the other one is refusing, we have to put them on the way, we send them on their way to other appropriate agencies, the court if necessary. Uh, we're focusing when we talk about MIMES, it seems on that very small number where they just got to the point of court issue and then we say, well, the mimes were unsuccessful because by definition they were, because by definition they then follow through to go to court. But it, that's not the same as the sort of mediation assessments that we do that are, <coughs> when they are at a much earlier yeah. stage and yeah. the parties are not entrenched, yeah. are far, far more successful. Yeah. So where is tri triage going to happen? Well, currently I think an awful lot of tri triage remains with mediators mm. uh, when they have to. Um, and also I think with the lawyers when they see them early on, those who can afford lawyers to get out to early DR, um, and, and out to other services, um, and uh, hopefully only the, the, at the point of issue we're remaining with those who haven't yet been able to afford legal aid or have chosen to do DIY solutions, and then they need to be turned away uh, to other uh, those who do not need the family court. They, they can be diverted at that point if they haven't heard, which they should have done, by the other professionals such as mediators and solicitors who should have <coughs> intervened earlier to get them out of the court when they recognise they don't need to be there. Yeah. Anyone? No? Right. Lady at the very back. Well, there's two of you now. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Um, my name is Belinda Jones. I'm um, a family mediator and also a parenting coordinator. And I'd like to agree with the, uh, the comments that have just been made um, 
by the um, by, by um, the lady at the front. Um, we triage a lot when you see people at the start of the process, um, but also if you are a parenting coordinator, you triage at that stage too. That, that's when you see people who've been through the court process. They're fed up of fighting. Their solicitors are also fed up of them fighting. And in the UK at the moment, it's a voluntary process that both have to sign up for. Um, but if you look at parenting coordination in the Canada and the United States, for example, in in different states, in different provinces, um, it can be ordered by court, uh, and other times it's it's just voluntary. What I find with both hats on is that when you bring two people together, rather than have two people in an adversarial process, you you can bring them on an awful long way. And parenting coordination has a um, it takes an awful lot of the um, principles of mediation, but it 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 it, it allows you to work separately with both parties, which isn't something you can do in mediation, to actually help them with communication. And it's surprisingly simple when you have two people who finally um, want, want some sort of um, help. Usually they think it's the other party who needs the help. Mm -hmm. But that's okay, you can work with that if you have two people together. So I'm very much for um, bringing people together at any stage in the process, whether it's mediation at the start, parenting coordination at some other point, because that's where you help the children the most. No, that's helpful. That's Yes, the lady next to you. Hi, I just thought that I could grab the mic while it was right yeah, next to yeah. me if I put my hand up quickly. Uh, my name is Alice Twait and I work for the Transparency Project, which is a small charity hoping to try and uh, make family court issues a bit clearer for the public and a wide range of people. And I really just want to come back to the 38% and I realise I'm not actually asking a question, so sorry. A very quick comment without delving back into it. I just wanted to say that the Transparency Project have a blog where they tried to assess that claim and analyze it. And it's a very good starting point for anyone that just wants to delve more deeply into it with all the links uh, that we could find around analyzing that. And it's called, if anyone is interested, sorry, I need to put my glasses on. Uh, we need a torch as well, do you? <laughs> <laughs> it's called Custody Fights Blight 4 in 10 Breakups, a word of caution, question mark. It's written by Kelly Reeve on behalf of the Transparency yeah. Project. A quick well, Google would find it. And I think, I think it was triggered by my 38%, which yeah, it was, but also the, what the media then did with that, uh, having gone yes. through a, yeah. a press release from an organisation yeah. speaking yeah. tonight and, and stuff where does and all it, the rest. What's, what's the bottom line? Does it there come isn't a bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I suppose if I was tentatively going to make a stab, it would be nearer the 38% than the 10% if you, if you read it. But it wasn't me that wrote it, so actually I might no. be being unfair. There, no. there is a real note of caution around the very, very unclear... Um, definitions of all the different things applied to reach yeah. that figure, as far as I can see. The, the, the importance of it is, and in the end we get who we get and we, we do with them, but it's the importance of it is, if the public at large understood it was that sort of proportion or anything like it, it would be recognised as a significant social um, issue, whereas if it's just a few people who can't sort things out, it's not worth spending great money on or, or giving it any priority. But it, the feel is, from being judge and the rest of us, um, a, a lot of folk currently can't sort these things out, particularly as there aren't lawyers available for most of them to go to. And it's really hard for them, it's hard for the children, it's harmful for them, it's harmful for children, and we aren't necessarily helping. We're, we're the last, we're the backstop, um, but, um, and we do what we do, but it's not a great way of sorting disputes out. And so I think if, if the public at large understood that this was a problem for a significant number of people who separate, then it would go up the, the, the policy profile. Yes, Jenny. And then this gentleman next to you. 
I'm Jenny Beck, I'm yeah. chair of the Legal Aid Practitioners Group. Um, I'm, uh, obviously, I'm all for the green form, I don't care if it's green, but anything that brings back that first level triage at a solicitor level. Um, the point there is really about education, and I just really was interested to see what people's thoughts were about how we can educate people to see what the court should be used for. I think everybody's agreed that it's needed for, to protect people who are vulnerable mm. and to make mm. sure we can mm. maintain the rule of law and look after children and victims of abuse who wouldn't otherwise get justice. But to siphon off those unnecessary cases, when we had the green form and that early legal advice, it wasn't just that we were sending people off to mediation, which we of course were, but it's also that we're informing people as to how blunt a tool the family courts were and how inappropriate they were to bring cases of Johnny being returned without the same socks that he went off in. So I just wonder whether or not there's another way of getting that education a lot earlier in people's lives, even mm. at school level, mm. so people understand the use of the court and aren't just running to it for everything. Yeah. Well, nodding all round here. Anyone got any? Well, I mean, it, again, Stephen Cobb's group talked about the, the old-fashioned, uh, again, as Andrew's told you, I'm incredibly old, those old-fashioned public law announcements on the telly. You remember, you know, stop sneezing and all that. I mean, why can't we have, we have social media now, why can't we have a sort of genuine, you know, not patronising, but a genuine informative yeah. public law information programme uh, it can start in the schools, whatever. Sort of but, public, know, public health information. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these things are social and public health issues. And, and, and currently that, that message is transmitted, I'd have thought, in every magistrate's court and every district judge's chambers when they get there. But by then, they've paid their money, they've applied, and they want a court system. So yeah. we've just got to get that message out there before they even come through the court door. Yes. I would say the archers. The know? archers, yes. That's <laughs> well. Brilliant job on coercive control and on contact. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. Simpsons. Yeah. I'm neither. I'm Charles Kenyon and I'm from the University of Lincoln where I've been studying the effect of parenting, the effect of parenting plans in reducing conflict with separating parents. And as part of that, I've been sitting in on the separated parents' information programmes, mainly in Grimsby and Scunthorpe, and I've been very struck. I just wanted to reiterate what uh, Heather McGregor said, of how positively they are received, and the 90%, I'm sure, are quite rightly say that they really come away having learned a lot, possibly because they're in groups that don't include their partners. And how also I've observed that many of them say they're just far too late. Many of them yeah. are attending these SBIPs after their orders have been obtained. Mm -hmm. And that is perhaps why only 45% say that they haven't been any use in sorting out arrangements yeah. of their children. So a little bit earlier might harness the 90% of people attending there who yeah. feel that they're a really good thing. No. Well, I think... Uh, Everybody who's had experience of it says that they are a good thing and they achieve results. And uh, I think a clear recommendation of Stephen Cobb's group is that uh, as soon as a case that doesn't involve safeguarding or child protection comes into the court, before they ever see a magistrate or a judge, they go off to the SPIP uh, and get, get wised up by that process. Yes, uh, it's now 5-2, so this last but two, there's two, two questions. Lady in the middle here and lady at the back there. 
Hi, I'm, I'm Denise Ingemels. I wrote this bit. Um, oh. <laughs> um, I was I, just the warm-up act. Wasn't <laughs> I? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also deliver it a couple of times a week and have done for the last 10, 11 years since it was written. So I've seen probably eight, 9,000 people, mm. something like that, mm. parents on the spit. And I would say yes, most of them say earlier. And I would say yes, about 95% of people would say they found it really helpful. And they are challenged. It's not a lovely, cosy group mm. where they mm. sit and you know everybody agrees with everyone else. They are challenged. But I would also agree with Jane when she says about having mediation as an activity ordered alongside the spit. Mm. Because if they are... I mean, that is something that can be done now because I think there's a lot of things that could be done in the future. It could be earlier, all sorts of things. But if there's something that could be done now, it's actually that what happens is that window of opportunity at the end of a SPIP is lost because they go back to their lives and, yes, they found it useful, but that mediation could actually help them put that into practice and capture, you know, that opportunity that exists yeah. at the end of it. Yes, because they come out of the SPIP and they're, they're ripe then for some yes, yes. focus. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Lady towards the back. Hi, I am Sukhchandan Kaur and I am Nigel Roche. Nigel Roche is a professional association for children's guardians, family court advisors and independent social workers. In a room full of lawyers, I'm going to bring in a social worker perspective, uh, working and supporting the lawyers and the courts in resolving those disputes. My view is that when a, any by the time parents make applications to the court, they're often very exhausted, emotionally drained, and they're coming to court for solution. They expect magic solutions from there. At that point, dealing with their emotional well-being is really important. Man managing their emotions, if we could capture that at that stage, and it would be much helpful. What I would suggest is at that point, the initial assessment, which is normally called safeguarding letter, um, a closer look, better assessment of really what the issues really are in this family. And from that, there would be some cases where there would be some serious issues, such as domestic abuse, there could be sexual abuse, all those serious cases where it requires further risk assessment. That risk assessment will then decide whether they should be contact or whether there needs to be uh, further work, such as domestic violence perpetrators program or other programs, depending on what the risk is. If the risk is not manageable, then looking at what, how those children can maintain link with the parents. On the other side, if there's no serious issues, however, it is parents just fighting with each other for no reason, and that, that requires quite a closer look and working with maybe four to six sessions with the parents, working together, sitting them together, more educative role. That could be put through very enhanced separate parents' information program, or could be individual work. I think from 
our members who have worked with that independent social workers or uh, with, uh, working through NIAS, that approach where working with the parents has produced good results, where if there are risks whether the children are going to be harmed, and a decision is made whether the contact is really in the child's interest, or where it, decisions are made that the assessment is that children will benefit, however, those parents have difficulties. This, working with those parents from educative point of view to try and help them to resolve their dispute and so that they can have relationship with both parents. Yeah, that's, that's helpful, thank you. I'm going to, in a minute, ask each of the four speakers to just think of one thought to close matters on. But we're going to have a vote, because this is a debate. But this is quite a binary thing. I'm tempted to say, do all the separating parents who make an application always need the family court? But that's very complicated. That's the, that's the <laughs> parliamentary thing. So I think we'll have a vote for the way it's written there, a vote against, but we'll also have a vote for the Turner Prize <laughs> resolution, which is that the family court is needed for the sorts of cases uh, that um, uh, Olive in particular identified, but the apron of services and apron of interventions around the outside of the family court before you get in is also needed, so that really all four speakers have described two halves of the same coin, or whatever the phrase is, and that's the Turner Prize options. I've just spoken for it, haven't I? <laughs> but quick closing remarks from each of the four of you. If not... Uh, well, all I would say is, um, it's, you, you talk about education. I think we're talking about the management of expectations, and I think that's what um, Shell was talking about uh, in, in the early legal advice, which is... I think something which I think is extraordinarily valuable and which we should try very hard to recover. Yeah. Thank you. Olive. Um, I think when we are, I mean, the, the point I was making that we need to be thinking about reform in terms of the actual people that are accessing the family courts. Yeah. And I would like to see us think and speak a little bit more kindly about them mm. because actually yeah, what we yeah. know is that they're generally going through very difficult things in their lives. Yeah whether this is the right system or not. Yeah. Um, that's what I would say. Thank you. Problem families, not pesky litigants. Yes. Jane. Um, I would support the, the idea of general legal education for the whole population across a range of issues. I think that it's my experience that most people don't go into a court in their lifetime. Mm. And when they go in because they're separating, mm. it's a totally alien environment yeah. and a real shock to them. And it's a system in and of itself. And I think that we've all more or less said the same thing from mm. different points mm. of view with some disagreement. But yeah. there is a need, but it needs to be different. Yeah. Thank you. Heather. Um, well, just two things. Um, one, I think the point you made about some, you know, real figures as best as we can in relation to what the problem is, uh, uh, so that uh, if at all possible, it can go higher up the, the scale in relation uh, to really providing the appropriate resources. And I think the other thing is perhaps following on from what um, Olive said. Um, you know, Mavis said in, in, in her. 
um, speech, we have to ask the government what it wants from a family justice system. I mean, I would say we've, we've got to ask the people who come to us what they want and what they think they're going to get. Mm. Uh, and maybe if we follow and we get real research in relation to that, we can actually help them to understand it's probably not what you're going to get. Mm. And that may yeah. be an incentive to them to look at some, somewhere Something else. Something else. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Make your mind up time. Um, all Should those. We leave the no, you can't <laughs> move. You can, you can hide under the table if you want. <laughs> all those uh, who believe that separating parents do need the family court. Put their hands up. Okay, so on to. I'm going to have to count that now. That looks to me like about a quarter of the room. Is that fair enough? All those. Uh, who do not believe that separating parents need the family court. That's a smaller, <laughs> smaller number. It's mainly the judges. <laughs> <laughs> and all those who would go for the unified Turner Prize resolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. And I think you're right. I think that's. I think that's what we would all for, uh, for all five of us. It's, it's the no-brainer, actually. You want a joined-up system that, uh, where the, the option of coming to the court is there for those who, who do need it, but before that, they're offered a range of uh, interventions around it. Um, before we go, I'm going to ask you to express your thanks in a minute, but I want to particularly thank Paula and Daphne, not just for tonight, which has gone seemingly effortlessly, but of course it's taken a lot of uh, effort. The Family Justice Council is unique in our system. You th look around the room, look who's here, look at the variety of people who feel connected to it. Um, no one else is putting on an event like this and no one else does the work the Family Justice Council does uh, around the sides of the system, looking at the bigger picture and the reports it pulls together and the guidance it, uh, it issues and the conference it runs uh, in the spring of, of each year. I suspect Paula and Daphne uh, working in the office the Family Justice Council at times feel it's a thankless task, but this is an occasion when we can thank the two of them and the four speakers for tonight. Thank you. Right. Thank you for coming. Safe home, and don't take any of the turf with you on the way home. Who's watching?